Father, we're grateful for today and grateful for this um, uh, special holiday where we uh, commemorate what you have established uh, in your word for fathers and fatherhood. Um, We just ask that fathers would be uh, properly given their due here at Sugarland Bible Church in, in an age where people are sort of trying to blend, you know, everything together uh, with the transgender type of mindset. And we seek here, Lord, to get back to your truth, your word, what you have established as your priorities. And uh, we do ask, Father, for your hand of blessing on both the Sunday school hour and the main service that follows. I ask for the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit so that we might be able to understand your word. And Lord, we're just going to take a moment privately to do personal business with you in case uh, we need broken fellowship restored so that we can receive uh, from your word unhindered uh, today. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which does not restore our position, which is eternally settled, but it does restore fellowship since we as your people do sin. Hopefully, Lord, we're sinning less, but you tell us in your word that we will not be sinless until our glorification and so in the interim, we need 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. And so we do ask, Father, that uh, as VBS and what was accomplished this week at VBS is presented, that we might see your hand in all of these things at Sugarland Bible Church. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Well, if you could uh, take your Bibles and open them to um, Ezekiel 37, verses 11 through 14. And as you know, we wrapped up last week our verse-by-verse teaching through Ezekiel 36 through 39. Um, in a series that we entitled The Middle East Meltdown that we started the first of the year. So we've gone through Ezekiel 36, which is a prophecy of Israel's physical and spiritual restoration in the last days. And from there we went into Ezekiel chapter 37, which essentially are two illustrations describing the content in chapter 36. And then in chapter 38, um, we basically saw, and chapter 39, the tools that God is going to use to take his regathered nation, Israel, regathered in unbelief in the last days, and eventually restore them to faith in himself. And the tool that he's going to use is that northern invasion that you see described in Ezekiel 38. And then once you get into chapter 39, it kind of doesn't, as many people would like it to read, doesn't give you every detail of the tribulation period, but it gives you the end results, what God was seeking to do. The end results is a restored Israel. And so there's sort of a flash forward, chapter 39, to the end of the tribulation. And because these chapters are, I would argue, are in play right now prophetically, not in the sense of fulfillment, but in the sense of stage setting, we took a careful verse-by-verse look through those chapters. So with all that being said, what I asked you to do is submit to me some questions 
uh, based on the content that we've covered. So we can move into a kind of a Q&A this week and most likely next week at least. And so many, many questions came in online. Um, I would just ask you to put into the subject line MEM or Middle East Meltdown questions or something so I can discern which emails or what. And this is a case where if you submitted your question late or last, you get the top honors because I started to work my way down through the email. So those of you that were diligent and put your question in early, you get pushed to the very end, unfortunately. So sorry about that. But here is a question, and as you can see on the screen, I've got a list of seven questions that came in that we're going to try to walk through in this session uh, this morning. So the first question deals with the timeline. And it says, taking into consideration the following, number one, the Antichrist appears on the scene at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. Number two, the abomination of desolation occurs in the middle of the seven-year tribulation. And number three, Israel will be burying the dead and burning weapons for seven years. With all of that being said, where does Ezekiel's war fit into this timeline? So I really appreciate that question because the person that asked it kind of lays out the parameters of the tribulation. Let's see, is my voice again going in and out like it was last week? No, we're good. I get, I'm getting a few, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting one thumbs down and several thumbs up. Um, I don't know if this is because this thing doesn't have enough battery power. I'm looking at it, and it looks like the battery is fully charged. But at this point, there's not a lot I can do about it. Apologize. But this particular question lays out the parameters of the tribulation. And the only passage we have in the Bible that lays out the parameters of the tribulation period is the... 70th week of Daniel, spelled out in Daniel 9.27. If you don't have Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 in your Bible, then you don't have the parameters of the tribulation. So the parameters of the tribulation are, number one, the tribulation period is going to last seven years. Number two, what's going to start the tribulation period is not the rapture. That's a misconception. People think the rapture starts the tribulation. That is not true. The rapture will happen, and then the Antichrist will come forward at some point. And then he will enter into a covenant with unbelieving Israel. And once that happens, the seven-year countdown starts. And what is going to happen exactly in the middle of the tribulation period will be the Antichrist's desecration of the temple. He will go into the Jewish temple and he will essentially deify himself. And he will set up a pagan image in the temple. And Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 is very clear that that happens right in the middle of this tribulation period. And then what concludes the seven years will be the personal return of Jesus Christ to the earth. Not the rapture, which happens before this even occurs, where he comes in the air and we are caught up to be with him at the conclusion of the church age, but the return of Christ where he actually comes to the earth and his feet actually touch planet earth. They touch the Mount of Olives And at that point, he will start his thousand-year kingdom, which happens after he bodily returns. So Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 is a big deal because it gives you this, this outline. The book of Revelation will not give you this outline. The book of Revelation will assume that you already know the outline. 
This is the problem of starting your study of prophecy with the book of Revelation. You start with the book of Revelation, you have all these things happening, and they're all interesting to study, but you have no framework or parameters to plug the events into. So all John in the book of Revelation is doing is he's adding details to the structure that Daniel already established. He tells you when the seal judgments are going to occur, when the trumpet judgments are going to occur, when the bowl judgments are going to occur. He gives you a lot more information, John does, about the desecration of the temple by the Antichrist. And he gives you a lot more information about the personal return of Jesus at the end. So the question is, since that's the parameters of the tribulation, where does the Gog-Magog war fit? Um, if you ask two teachers this question, you'll probably get five answers. So my view on it is not the only view on the block, so to speak, but I believe that chapter 38, the war happens consistent with seal judgment number two, very early in the tribulation. Because, and I'll try to explain this a little later with another question, there's a transition from peace to war in Ezekiel 38. That's exactly what's happening with the first two seal judgments. You go from peace under the Antichrist to war. And then chapter 39, it kind of leaps forward and it starts to talk about things that happen at the end of the tribulation. Like, for example, the birds of prey gorging on the corpses. Like a converted Israel. And we know from other passages of Scripture that those are events that take place at the end of the tribulation. So what I'm seeing is chapter 38 happening essentially with seal judgment number 2 and chapter 39 essentially transpiring at the end of the tribulation period. So you'll have the birds of prey at the end, Israel's conversion at the end, and the weapons at that point are burned for seven years. The bodies of the invaders are buried for seven months. And I see, as I tried to explain in the series, the burial and the burning continuing on into the millennial kingdom. A lot of people don't like that. They don't want their millennium messed up with a bunch of smoke and burials. But to me, it's not that big of a problem because the millennial kingdom is a renovation and not an ex nihilo new creation. So there's actually going to be death in the millennial kingdom amongst the surviving mortals, children of the mortals of the tribulation, those that survive the tribulation, that are believers that enter the kingdom in their mortal bodies and repopulate the earth, that generation will still experience death. So the millennial kingdom is not a pristine, perfect environment. There's actually going to be animals slaughtered during that time period. And essentially what you have happening here is um, since the millennial kingdom is really not a ex nihilo new creation, but a renovation, I don't really have much of a problem seeing burial and burning of weapons happening during that kingdom age. So Ezekiel 38 is the second seal judgment. Ezekiel 39, most of it, is the end of the tribulation period. And then the weapons burning and the burial continues on into the thousand-year kingdom. So I hope that helps with that. That's uh, uh, an issue with timing. And that's a perspective that you probably won't hear anywhere else other than here. <laughs> because you're in a kind of a weird church. Amen? Can I get an amen on that? All right, question number two deals with, this is very interesting, Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53, and Ezekiel 37, verses 11 through 14. So you might want to hold your place in Ezekiel 37. 
and flip over to Matthew chapter 27, verses 52 and 53. So question number two is, did Matthew and him only include the resurrection of the bodies of the saints as a preview and an assurance to the new Jewish believers in the Messiah? Could he have included this event in his gospel as an assurance to the believers of the ultimate fulfillment of Ezekiel 37, 11 through 14? I ask because Matthew wrote his gospel to new Jewish believers to prove that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. It seems strange that Matthew would include this singular event that none of the gospel writers even mention, unless it was for the purpose of giving encouragement and hope that God will yet, in fact, do what he said in Ezekiel 37, verses 11 through 14, maybe as a preview or a foreview. So let me um, try to explain this question a little bit. In Matthew chapter 27, it talks about something that took place in the city streets of Jerusalem when Jesus died. When Jesus died, there were lots of signs. Uh, For example, the veil in the temple, was torn asunder from top to bottom. That was a miracle that occurred. So God the Father was giving evidence that what happened with his son on the cross was very, very significant in the outworking of his program. And if you look at verse uh, 50 of Matthew 27, it says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In other words, he died. And then most of the gospel writers record verse 51. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. So miracles were occurring, testifying to what Jesus had accomplished. And then you go down to verses 52 and 53, and you read something very interesting. It says, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And then verse 53, it says, coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. So the question then is, number one, is Matthew the only gospel writer that records the events of verses 52 and 53? And if Matthew is the only gospel writer that includes those events and he's writing to a Jewish audience, is that sort of a foreview? A preview, if you will, if you will, to what it says in Ezekiel 37, verses 11 through 14. Ezekiel 37, verses 11 through 14 says, He said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope has perished, and we are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have opened your graves and caused you to come out of your graves, my people. And then it says, verse 14 of Ezekiel 37, I will put my spirit within you. And you will come to life, and I will place you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. So when you look at these people that came out of their graves in Matthew 27, they they were not resurrected. The term resurrection in Matthew 27 applies only to the resurrection of Jesus. What was happening in Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53, is what I would call a resuscitation. They came out of their 
their graves. They were still in their mortal bodies, and we presume that at some point they died again. It's kind of like what happened to Lazarus. You remember in John 11, Jesus brought Lazarus out of the dead. But I'm assuming that when Lazarus came out of the dead in John 11, he was still in his mortal body, and so at some point he died again. Or else we could go over to Jerusalem and visit Lazarus, right, and get his autograph. So obviously at some point he died again, even though Jesus brought him out of the grave. So what Jesus did with Lazarus and what's happening with these people that came out of the tombs is not a resurrection. Once a person is in their resurrected body, they will never die again. And these people could not have been resurrected because Christ's resurrection is the the what fruits? The first fruits. Jesus is the first one who actually rose from the dead in a glorified body. So this was just a sign that God allowed to happen to testify to the significance of what his son had just done and accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago. Now, I find this question very interesting because there are evangelical scholars today, and I'm going to give you their names because I think what they're doing is so totally outrageous. They are arguing that verses 52 and 53 never happened. These are not liberals doing this. These are evangelical scholars saying this. And they're trying to argue that this is some sort of apocalyptic genre where it's just sort of recording a hyperbole. But... These were not actual resuscitations from the grave. So two of them are actually right here in the Houston area. I think the last time I checked, connected with the apologetics department, one of our evangelical uh, Houston schools. Uh, One of the gentlemen that's promoting this is a man named Michael Lycona. And another one that's promoting it, and it's not a matter of hearsay, you can actually go to the internet and you can actually type in their names and Matthew 27 verses 52 and 53 and you can watch the footage yourself of them denying this as a historical event. The other individual is a guy named William Lane Craig. Both of these gentlemen are promoting themselves as defenders of Christianity. In other words, their whole ministry is apologetics Defending the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's an example where the very people that are supposed to be defending Christianity are actually denying what the Bible says. Because as you read this, it doesn't indicate at all anything other than this is an actual historical account that happened. It's not a resurrection. It's a resuscitation. And part of their logic is this couldn't have happened because Jesus is the firstfruits. Well, Jesus is the first fruits in terms of a resurrection, not a resuscitation. So here at Sugarland Bible Church, we believe that Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53, what happened exactly like the Bible says. You know, I'm not going to stand up here and play some scholarly game and everybody take white out, out and erase these verses from your Bible. Because this happened. So the question is, is Matthew the only gospel writer that records this this event? And there's an easy way to figure that out. Um, most of you with study Bibles in between Malachi and Matthew have something called a harmony of the gospels, which takes all of the gospel events as recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and puts them in chronological order. So I use the Ryrie Study Bible as my study Bible. He has a wonderful harmony of the Gospels there. And uh, when you look at Matthew chapter 27, verses 52 and 53, and you see where this scene shows up in the other Gospel writer's presentation, you'll notice that only Matthew records this. And that also becomes part of the logic given not by liberals, 
but by so-called leading evangelicals, that this never took place. This never took place, they say, because it's apocalyptic literature. This never took place, they say, because Christ was the first fruits. So how could anybody rise from the dead, you know, before Jesus? And they're not distinguishing resurrection versus resuscitation. And they say only Matthew talks about this. So I guess, you know, if something shows up in the Bible only once, I guess people are free to pretend like it didn't happen, right? Now, who invented that rule? Man invented that rule. Just because something only shows up once in the Bible doesn't mean it didn't happen. And to say it only happened once, and therefore we have the freedom and liberty to ignore the clear presentation of history there is just a man-made rule. I mean, that would be like Eve and Adam in Eden, you know, after God confronted them for eating from the forbidden tree, that would be like them saying back to God, well, God, you only told us once. I mean, you only gave us the command about the tree of knowledge, don't eat from it. You only said it once. I mean, if you had said it twice or three times, we would take it more seriously. So we're living in a very weird time period within evangelical Christianity where the very people that are supposed to be defending Christianity, in fact, are destroying it in some sense. Because if this did not happen exactly like it says, it's not much of a leap to get to, in the same chapter, and in the subsequent chapter, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, without which, by the way, there's no such thing as Christianity. You don't have a bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You don't have Christianity Paul makes that point very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 14. If, you know, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain, is what Paul says. You don't have a resurrection, you don't have Christianity. It's not that difficult to say, well, if Matthew got it wrong here in Matthew 27, then maybe he got it wrong in Matthew 28. Where it talks about the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So I'm a, I'm a little bit, you know, on edge when I see people in places of influence within the church telling God's people to not believe certain parts of the Bible. Because if you can deny the Bible at a point, you can deny the Bible anywhere. It's, uh, it's just like a good um, cross-examination in a court of law. I mean, what do the attorneys to discredit a witness What do they try to do? They just try to find one problem in the witness's testimony. One contradiction. And they don't have to destroy everything the person said. Just find a problem, or better yet, find two problems, and the attorneys are going to think, okay, now the jury, when it goes back and deliberates, it's going to say, well, if that witness was wrong in point A, maybe the witness is also wrong in point B. And point C and point D, and point E. So this is the problem of evangelical scholars trying to get people to think that things in the Bible narrated as history, you know, didn't happen. So it is true that only Matthew's gospel records this, doesn't make it any less valid of a historical account. And it is true that Matthew was written to a Hebrew Christian audience, We believe that Matthew's gospel was the first gospel recorded. That's what 2,000 years of church history has taught us. And people didn't start second-guessing that until, I don't know, the 1900s. All the church fathers believed that Matthew was the first gospel uh, recorded. And Matthew wrote to the church while it was still a Hebrew Christian audience most likely before Paul went on his first missionary journey, during which the church started to become predominantly Gentile. And that may be why only Matthew records this, 
because he's speaking to a Hebrew Christian audience who would understand Ezekiel 37 verses 11 through 14. And Matthew is talking about this because he could be saying, you better believe everything you read in Ezekiel 37 verses 11 through 14 about a future resurrection. Not only of the dead, but of the whole nation of Israel is going to be brought back to life. You as a Hebrew Christian better better believe that because God, you might remember, when Jesus died on the cross, gave you a foreview of that prophecy by allowing people, the moment Jesus died, to come out of their graves in a resuscitation. So because Matthew is written to a Hebrew Christian audience and because Matthew is could be giving a preview or a foreview to a Jewish audience who would understand Ezekiel 37 of greater things to come, that may be why Matthew uh, recorded this account, despite the fact that this account is not found in Mark. It's not found in Luke. It's not found in John. And so the question is, why would only Matthew talk about this? The answer could be he's speaking to a Hebrew Christian audience who understands future resurrection. And he's saying, don't stop believing in a future resurrection because we have a preview of the whole thing through the resuscitation of the folks from the graves when Jesus died. So that's kind of an interesting question. I really wasn't planning on going that direction. But I think that's the answer to number two. Um, number three deals with stage-setting events. And it says, Could you compile a list of the most major prophetic stage-setting events that are presently taking place? So do you guys have a good uh, eight weeks for me to do that? Um, the good news is, well, first of all, what, is, what do they mean by stage setting? What we mean by stage setting is God is moving around the chess pieces in preparation for the great chess match. You can't have a chess match until someone sets the stage. Somebody has to take the chess board out of the game box and put it on the table. Somebody has to assemble the pieces into their proper places for a chess match to begin. And then the respective players or contestants in the chess match have to take their respective seats. So only when those things begin to transpire can you say, hey, a chess game is ready to start. As long as the chess board it stays in the chess, the chess um, box, chess board box, I guess you should say, and as long as it's stuck up in the closet somewhere, you know, you don't have any basis for saying, hey, a chess game or a chess match is ready to start. So in the same way, we do not believe that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is happening right now. A lot of people will teach it that way. They'll say, hey, these events are happening right now, and that's not our angle. Our angle is these are future events, but probably like no other prophecy I can think of in God's word, the hand of God clearly is aggressively setting the stage as we speak for the, what seems to be, the very soon fulfillment of this prophecy. So the question is, can you put together all of the events that show us how the stage is currently being set for the eventual fulfillment of Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39? And the good news is I've already tried to do that in my book, The Middle East Meltdown. Uh, if you go to chapter 6, there's um, a chapter there entitled How? Question mark. The book is set up in terms of organization by answering the journalistic questions. Who? Who was involved? When? When are these events going to take place? Why? 
Why will these invasion, uh, these nations invade Israel in the last days? What, what is going to be the outcome of these things? And then the last journalistic question in chapter six is how? How is the world stage being set up for the eventual fulfillment of this prophecy? So obviously I can't in time constraints give you an exhaustive list of stage setting now. Uh, I would recommend chapter 6 where I try to do that in detail. But let me just toss in a few highlights if I could. The first major stage setting event that's happening right now before your very eyes is what is called the miracle on the Mediterranean. The regathering of Israel in unbelief after 2,000 years of worldwide dispersion into her homeland. Unless that piece of the jigsaw puzzle is in place, all the other things predicted in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 can't happen. That's why we call the regathering of Israel in unbelief into her homeland, her rebirth as a nation, May the 14th, 1948, and God's consistent, continual recycle of the Jews back to their homeland in unbelief. That's the super sign for the end times. Because what people will say is they'll say, oh, come on, people have been talking about the end times for 2,000 years of church history. Why do you think your generation is unique? I think our generation is unique because of what I just said. No other generation has seen what we are seeing in the Middle East in terms of the rebirth politically, not yet spiritually, of the nation of Israel. And show me one other nation in the history of the world that's kicked out of their land 2,000 years ago, which is what the Jews experienced at the hands of Rome in A.D. 70. And then they're pushed into worldwide dispersion, and they go right back into that same land with their language intact, their culture intact, such a thing has never happened. And that is exactly what God said he would do in the last days. In other words, if you start seeing that happen, you have to start paying very close attention to Bible prophecy because you're living in a time period that most Christians in the last 2,000 years could never fathom. I mean, most Christians over the last 2,000 years saw no evidence of this. In fact, there was nothing in that part of the world for most of the time but a barren expanse. And here we're seeing the nation of Israel alive again. The sociologists tell us that when a nation is dispersed from its homeland, it loses its language and loses its culture within a few generations. They're assimilated into the host culture. That's why today we don't see Hittites, Canaanites, Jebusites, etc., even though they're all spoken of in the Bible, just as the nation of Israel is. But you do see a Jewish nation, which means the Jewish nation is an anomaly. It never disappeared. It never assimilated. It never lost its culture. And so when you pick up your headlines and you read anything about the nation of Israel, you automatically should think as a Christian, this is a miracle of God. People all the time are saying, do you think God does miracles today? Are you kidding me? He's doing one of his greatest miracles right now as we speak that we call the miracle on the Mediterranean. And not only will Israel be regathered into her land in unbelief, but she'll start getting rich. That's what motivates this attack. Ezekiel 38, verse 12, we've studied all of the verses, describes the motive of the attackers. To capture spoil. To seize plunder. To turn your hand against the waste places, which are now inhabited. Think about that. God says the land will be a waste and then it will be inhabited by the Jewish people. And the land will begin to prosper. 
and against the people who are gathered from the nations, who have acquired cattle and goods, who live at the center of the world. Ezekiel 38 and verse 13 to the invaders says, God says through Ezekiel, Have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder and to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil? Do you see how it keeps mentioning spoil? Silver, gold, plunder. So obviously, in order for this prophecy to be fulfilled, Israel has to exist. And in order for this prophecy to be fulfilled, Israel has to become very wealthy. So when Israel comes back into existence, and Israel in the land that was once desolate starts to become very uh, wealthy, what do you do with that? You don't say, well, prophecy is happening right now. Because it's not. We haven't seen this prophecy fulfilled. What we do say is someone just took the game board out of the game box. Somebody, the hand of God, is arranging arranging the pieces on the board. The players are taking their respective seats, and something is about to happen. Uh, That's how you interpret these things. So this sudden wealth coming to Israel is exactly what God says, and it's exactly what happened. The transition from desolation to wealth in that part of the world is happening as we speak. Mark Twain, I've shared this quote with you many times, in 1867, went over there and he said, you know, the Holy Land is not much to look at. He called it in 1867, a desolate country whose soil is rich enough but is given over wholly to weeds. A silent, mournful expanse, a desolation is here that not even imagination can grace with the pomp of life and action. We never saw a human being on the whole route. CNN will never give you this quote because they want you to believe that Israel displaced a thriving population. That's not what Mark Twain says. I was over there in 1867. We never even saw a single person. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive tree and the cactus, those fast friends of worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. And look at Israel today. Look at her gross domestic product in 2005 relative to her surrounding neighbors. Look at her gross domestic product in 2021 relative to her surrounding neighbors. And what do you say when you see something like this? God is setting the stage. Exactly what God said is happening. To fulfill exactly what God said in his word one day by way of prophetic fulfillment, because God cannot what? He cannot lie. So how is the stage being set? Here comes Israel back into our land. Here comes wealth accruing to Israel. And then as we have studied in this um, series, there's a group of nations that will invade Israel. Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Tagorma, Magog, Cush, and Put. Now, other than Rosh, just ask yourself a very simple question. What do all of those nations have in common? They are what? Islamic. Islam has captured a foothold of dominance in all of those nations. And what you have to understand about Islam is Islam furnishes the motive for the attack. I mean, not only are all these nations in existence, like God said, but they're motivated to invade Israel. Why does Islam furnish the motivation for the attack? It's very simple. To Islam, Jerusalem is a holy site. 
is there according to their current rendering and rendition of their religion. It's the third most significant holy site in Islam behind Mecca and Medina. Now, it's very interesting that in Islam, Jerusalem is the third most holy site. That's why when you see footage of Muslims praying in the city of Jerusalem, they will have their back ends or their rear ends, if I can put it that way, towards the Temple Mount. Now, why are they doing that? Because they are facing where? Saudi Arabia, Mecca and Medina. Why is your back end towards the Temple Mount and you're praying towards Mecca and Medina because in Islam, Jerusalem is the third most precious holy site. But nevertheless, they look at it as a holy site. That's where Muhammad allegedly ascended back to Allah on a steed. And I've already told you the name of the steed, right? Uh, the steed's name is Barak. And this is so bizarre, this whole thing. I can't, you obviously know I'm not making this up. It's just way too creative for me to make this up. And they hold this position even though the name Jerusalem never appears in the Quran. Now, your Bible mentions the city of Jerusalem 800 times. You will not find a single reference to Jerusalem by name in the Quran. Why is that? Because the Muslims really weren't interested in that part of the world until the Jews returned to the land and made it prosperous. I mean, who wants a bunch of desert? But once you start seeing today's gross domestic product, suddenly Islam has a great interest in the city of Jerusalem. So as long as Islam thinks this way, and they do, current renditions of Islam look at the city of Jerusalem as their third most precious site or holy site. And all of these nations that are described in the Gog-Magog invasion have that mindset. What you have in place is not only the right nations, but you have the right motivation for the attack. That's why Islam's proliferation into all of these countries is yet another significant stage-setting event that you put alongside of Israel's rebirth and Israel's wealth. Now, what Ezekiel 38 says is very interesting. Not all of the nations in that part of the world are going to cooperate. Sheba and Dedan aren't going to like it. And the merchants of Tarshish aren't going to like it when this invasion occurs. And you see this in Ezekiel 38, verse 13. It says, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish, with all its villages, will say to you, have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder? to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil. So Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish will not like the invasion, but they will speak up against it, but they won't do anything to stop it. That's what Bible prophecy predicts. Now, who are Sheba and Dedan? Sheba and Dedan are Saudi Arabia. In fact, the cities of... Sheba and Dedan exist in Saudi Arabia on modern-day maps. So what Bible prophecy is saying is this invasion will occur, but Saudi Arabia will sort of protest. It's a lame protest. They don't like the invasion. They speak up, but they don't do anything to stop it. And so you ask yourself, well, why is Saudi Arabia so bent out of shape? And to be completely frank with you, we had no, almost no explanation for this until the Abraham Accords came into existence. Now, you've heard of the Abraham Accords, right? Those are normalization agreements between some 
Arab states, and the nation of Israel. And it's just an agreement that basically says we will recognize Israel's right to exist in exchange for the four T's, and I shouldn't have said there were four because inevitably I'm going to forget one, uh, tourism, trade, technology, and there we go. I forgot the last one. All right, three T's. Tourism, trade, technology. Somebody help me with the last one. Travel. Thank you. You guys are very good listeners. So once that is entered into, all of a sudden some of these Muslim states are profiting because of Israel. And the various states that have entered into the Abraham Accords would be Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. And what's right next door to Dubai? Saudi Arabia. In fact, all of the analysts, if you watch them, will tell you that Saudi Arabia is the next one to fall in terms of entering into the Abraham Accords. So suddenly with the Abraham Accords, you have an explanation why Saudi Arabia won't like the invasion. Now, what do you do with that? You don't say prophecy is being fulfilled. What you say is God just got the chessboard out of the box in the closet and he's blowing off the dust. <sighs> Brought my sound effects with me today. I've been working all week with kids in vacation Bible school. So we had a little thing we did to get the kids to be quiet. We would say waterfall, and then we would, yeah, look at that. We would all go, <sighs> So if I catch you talking in the sermon, I'm going to say waterfall, <sighs> There we go. So blow off the dust off the game board and God just put another piece of the jigsaw puzzle into place. Prophetic stage setting. And then it says the other folks that won't like the invasion, in addition to Sheba and Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish will not like the invasion. Now where is Tarshish? Anybody know? It's in modern day Spain. And notice it says the merchants of Tarshish, the money men, in other words. The young lions of Tarshish are taken to mean either the strong leaders and princes of greedy rulers of those commercial communities. Charles Feinberg, in his Ezekiel commentary, points out. And what is going on in Saudi Arabia? Excuse me, Tarshish. Not much, unless you understand that Morocco, do you see Morocco there? Is right beneath Spain. What was the last nation that we have knowledge of that just entered into the Abraham Accords besides the United Arab Emirates? It was Morocco. Morocco, very close to Spain, is in a trading relationship with Spain. So as Morocco prospers because of Israel, thanks to the Abraham Accords, so does Spain or Tarshish. Aha! We have an explanation now as to why the merchants of Tarshish, along with Sheba and Dedan, are protesting the invasion. Now, what, would I, what do I do with that? I don't say prophecy is being fulfilled right now. What I say is God is putting another piece of the jigsaw puzzle, or the chessboard, I should say, uh, into place. And then you've got the only non-Islamic country mentioned in this invasion, probably the entity from the far north that's spearheading the invasion, an entity called Rosh. And we've gone into a lot of detail in this study explaining that Rosh is who? Rosh is Russia. And what's interesting about Russia is prior to the communist revolution in 1917, Russia was a Christian Orthodox country. I mean, did you know that? Uh, we think of Russia as the evil empire uh, we think of Russia as an expansionistic, aggressive power. 
No, that was not Russia's character prior to the communists in 1917 getting control of Russia. But after the Marxists got control of Russia, they changed the character of the nation. Almost 2,600 years ago, 2,500 years ago, after Ezekiel saw this vision. See, if I was up here trying to explain all this prior to the communist revolution in Russia, you would think I'm absolutely crazy. But now the scenario that I'm presenting doesn't seem so crazy anymore. Because we see a post-communist, expansionistic, aggressive Russia. And by the way, uh, no extra charge for this, but there is a Marxist revolution going on right now in the United States of America. Hope you understand that. It's trying to change the United States of America culturally from top to bottom, not the least of which is getting control of the voting machines. And just as the Marxist changed the culture and the trajectory of an entire nation post-1917, the exact same thing is happening right now in the United States. So if you want to see what a Marxist revolution looks like, um, you're seeing it happen. You know, Stalin himself put on show trials against his opponents. He put them through a sham uh, judicial proceeding where the outcome was already determined. Now, now, what in the world do you call this dog and pony show that we've seen publicly aired concerning the January 6th protesters? You know, grandmas and grandpas draped in their red, white, and blue blankets so they wouldn't freeze to death, being turned into domestic terrorists where you have a public hearing of a trial where, oh, by the way, we're going to put up a witness, but no one is allowed to cross-examine the witness. That's not a trial. That's a show. That's exactly what Stalin did in Russia. So we're also going to select in advance who's going to speak at the hearing. Oh, don't worry, we'll have a couple of Republicans in there. Not telling the people that the, Repu- the two Republicans they picked are basically, you know, never Trumper type mindset. So what I'm saying is, you know, we talk about communist revolutions in Russia. Isn't that a shame? The same exact thing is happening right now in the United States. And there is no possible way that Ezekiel could have seen the character of that nation change, but he saw it. Because God gave him a prophecy. And so as Russia went Marxist, she also became expansionistic. In 2008, Russia rolled right over neighboring Georgia. 2014, Russia did the same thing in nearby Crimea. And my goodness, what just happened this year? Russia just invaded the Ukraine. It's kind of interesting to me that Russia, or the Ukraine, I should say, or Ukraine, is between Russia and Israel. Have you noticed that? I mean, it doesn't seem to me that as Russia becomes more expansionistic, she's going like in the opposite direction. (laughs) It seems like she's coming down from the north, eventually into the Middle East, exactly what Ezekiel said would happen. So you pick up your newspaper and all of a sudden Russia invades Ukraine and you say to yourself, oh my goodness, prophecy isn't being fulfilled right now, but my, the stage is being set like I've never seen before. Um, And what do you do with the late great United States of America? Surely the United States of America would ride to Israel's rescue, wouldn't she? Well, Not so much if there's a Marxist revolution happening in your own country because the character of the United States is being altered. Uh, It typically starts with changing the values of the children through compulsory education. In fact, 
Um, I have this on two witnesses. That's exactly what Fidel Castro did when he deposed Batista and established a communist regime in Cuba. The first thing he went after, in addition to the guns, by the way, and what's in the news all the time, gun control, gun control, gun control. The whole agenda of Marxism is to disarm the population. And then you go after the minds of the children, and this is how Fidel did it. He would have his bureaucrats say, okay, kids, pray to God for ice cream. And all the kids would sort of bow their heads and pray to God for ice cream, and there's no ice cream truck that showed up. All right, kids, let's try something a little different. Pray to Fidel for ice cream. And these little kids, uh, the exact same age of kids that we had in this church during VBS this week, would bow their heads and pray to Fidel for ice cream. And look at this, the ice cream truck shows up. Fidel Castro, the first thing he did was to erase a knowledge of God from the culture, which you have to do to bring in a Marxist revolution, because as long as a Marxist or a knowledge of God exists, we'll believe in unalienable rights, that our rights come from who? From God. Well, you've got to get rid of God then. And that's why there's an attack after attack after attack on the knowledge of God amongst the youth, particularly in the schools, because they're trying to unseat or undo the Declaration of Independence. So a country like ours that's involved in a Marxist revolution is not going to do an awful lot to speak up and stop Russia's invasion from the north, are they? In fact, one of the entities mentioned um, is a group called Magog, And we basically in our study were very careful to show you that Magog are the various countries of Central Asia, uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, and I need to expand that to also include Afghanistan. Does that ring a bell? Afghanistan, that's the part of the world that we pulled out of. Now, anybody with two brain cells to rub together understands that when you pull out of a country, you get the civilians out first, you get our weapons out second, and then third, then you get the army out. We did it the opposite. We got the army out first. I don't don't know if it's the army, but the armed forces, you know what I'm saying. We left behind the civilians, and we left behind the weapons. Well, who gets the weapons now? By the way, how many weapons were there? 85 billion U.S. funding to the Afghan army. 75,000 vehicles. 600,000 weapons. 200 aircraft. Who gets the weapons? Ah, the Taliban gets them. So you have the Taliban, you know, driving around in all these cool tanks. Hey, this is really neat. Do you realize what the United States of America just did through its pullout of Afghanistan? We just armed Magog. Now, you look at that, you say, what do you do with all that? The prophecy is not being fulfilled, but the stage is certainly being set. I don't see America riding to Israel's rescue here. I see America going in the exact opposite direction because a communist revolution is taking place in the United States of America. So this is all under the category of stage setting. And then what Ezekiel 38 and 39 describes is Israel is going to survive miraculously. Do you realize that we've already had dress rehearsals of this? 1948, War of Independence, nobody bet on the Israelis, but the Israelis won. 1967, the Six-Day War, nobody bet on the Israelis, but the Israelis won. 
1973, the Yom Kippur War. Nobody bet on the Israelis, but the Israelis won. What is Ezekiel 38 and 39 talking about? It's talking about an invasion of such intensity that everybody counts Israel out, and yet Israel wins because God is on Israel's side. This uh, scenario that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is talking about has already been tested before, showcased um, through various dress rehearsals. I mean, the only thing we're waiting for is the final act. And so when you ask me how is the stage being set, that's my answer. And uh, look at that. I'm out of time. You guys probably weren't coming to church today thinking you're going to hear something like that, but you chose to come to Sugarland Bible Church. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for uh, these prophecies. We're grateful to see your hand in history. Um, help us as we seek to answer these various honest questions that people have submitted so that we can uh, well discern the times that we're living in and understand your word in these last days. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Keep sending your questions in, by the way.